0: Brothers and sisters, welcome to the first episode of Will of Providence. We are going to kick off this venture with a rather controversial topic, brought to light courtesy of Aaron Sorkin's latest film, The Chicago 7 Trial. Now, a lot of you must have heard about this subject, especially those who have watched the film or documentary they recently did on Netflix. If not, I would highly suggest you to give it a go. It's one of the best pieces of content they have put out this year. Now let's dive into the background a bit, and for that, we need to travel in the past to the 60s America. To be short and precise, the American invasion of Vietnam and the brewing anti-war sentiments in the country formed the background of this entire Odeal. The protesters, from the counterculture activists to students, assembled in Chicago, where the Democratic National Convention was to take place. The motive was to demonstrate against the war which had already resulted in deaths of more than 17,000 American soldiers at the time. The political climate in the country was tense and had further intensified due to deaths of Martin Luther King, the prominent leader in the civil rights movement, and Robert Kennedy, the former Attorney General. The Chicago mayor, being aware of the impending situation, had repeatedly stated during this time that law and order in the city will be maintained during the convention. He denied all the permits to the protesters, which were required to hold a peaceful demonstration. Regardless of that, a single rally did took place on the afternoon of August 20th. It drew several thousands of people. During the march, they were stopped by police and it seemed to have happened exactly near the hotel where the delegates attending the convention were stationed. What followed was a significant clash between police and protesters, which was televised nationwide with Americans all around the country treated to images of tear gas filling the evening air chaotic bloody clashes and police brutality. In the aftermath, in September, a group which later came to be known as Chicago 7 was charged with conspiracy inciting to riot and other crimes. The original eight defendants were indicted on March 20, 1969. Now, let's get a brief glimpse into who the defendants were in the matter. The first defendant was Dave Dillinger, he stood apart from other defendants in his age and his lengthy experience as a pacifist. Now, for those who don't know, pacifism is an ideology where an individual opposes to war or violence of all kinds. Dillinger was born in Massachusetts to a well-connected Republican family. While studying economics at Yale, he started to get involved in politics. Throughout his lifetime, he had to do time in jail due to his reluctance to conscription. He did time in federal jail at the time of Second World War. After the war, he decided to create a magazine by the name of Liberation and continued expressing his dissent for the establishment when he criticized the use of nuclear arms in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Dillinger was a co-chair of the National Mobilization Committee, an organization which was closely involved in planning the Chicago protests. That being said, we move along to the second defendant who went by the name Tom Hayden. Hayden was one of the most prominent leaders Of the radical political movements that emerged on college campuses in the 1960s. Hayden was best known for his major role as an anti-war and civil rights activist. During that period, he served as an editor of Michigan Daily, who would then go on to be a founder of Students for Democratic Society, the SDS, a prominent radical youth group in the 60s. As a civil rights worker, he was beaten in Mississippi and jailed in Georgia. In his cell, he began writing what became the Fourth Huron Statement, the political manifesto of SDS, the Students' Democratic Society, and the New Left that envisioned an alliance of college students in a peaceful crusade to overcome what it called repressive government, corporate greed, and racism. During his years in SDS, he was continuously involved in community projects, even organizing a few himself. He was often the target of protests by leftists who called him an outlaw hypocrite and the veterans of war who called him a traitor. Hayden's friend at the SDS, Renee Davis, was another co-defendant at the trial. Davis for several years was involved in group's economic research and action project which worked to organize poor urban neighborhoods. By 67, Davis was increasingly involved in the SDS anti-war activities. Davis and Hayden joined with the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam and planning massive demonstrations to coincide with the Democratic Convention in Chicago. He found himself at the center of police attack on demonstrators in Grand Park as he urged the crowd to stay calm. The police moved against the demonstrators and hit Davis on head. He was both hospitalized and later arrested. At the conspiracy trial, Davis was only of the two defendants to testify as defense attorney Leonard Weinglass led him to recount the events in Grant Park. Now from Hayden and Davis, we go to Abby Hoffman, who has been portrayed brilliantly by Sasha Baron Cohen in the film. Abby Hoffman was one of the most visible and familiar of the Chicago's seven defendants. His style of cultural politics and confrontation defined much of the defendants' response to Judge Julius Hoffman and the government prosecutors Thomas Foran and Richard Schultz. The two Hoffmans engaged in verbal sparring throughout the trial, trading one-liners and gaining much of the attention of the press. Hoffman was born in Massachusetts and graduated from the University of California. In the early 60s, he became increasingly involved in social activism and organized northern support for the civil rights movement in the South. In the mid-60s, Hoffman moved to New York City and organized political theater. As Hoffman and other cultural radicals in New York planned political theatre to coincide with the convention in Chicago, they devised the idea of Hippie, a barely organised movement that would simultaneously mimic and mock a political party. Hoffman was highly visible in Chicago during most of the convention week, organising media events and speaking to crowds in Lincoln Park about expected confrontations with the police in Chicago. Hoffman was one of the two defendants to take a witness stand, and his extended testimony was an expression of his absurdist, subversive verbal style. Hoffman's performance in the courtroom was equally notable, seldom missing an opportunity to undermine the legitimacy of proceedings. Like his fellow EP, A.B. Hoffman, Jerry Rubin was a co-defendant in this case. Rubin participated in the free speech movement in 1964 and was one of the 1st teachings against the Vietnam War. He had also developed a reputation for theatrical behavior similar to Abbey, when in 1966, he appeared before the American Unactivities Committee dressed as a revolutionary soldier. After an unsuccessful run for mayor of Berkeley, Rubin moved to New York where he merged his political activism with an interest in cultural radicalism. He joined with David Dillinger of the National Mobilization Committee to organize a massive protest against Vietnam War in the October of 1967. With Abby Hoffman, Rubin was one of the founders of the Yippie movement. Rubin continued his antics a week prior to the convention, as he appeared at the Chicago Civic Center and nominated a pig as a president, named Pegasus. Rubin and other YP's drew on their media skills to spread wild rumors of non-existent YP plans, including a supposed effort to put LSD, a drug in the Chicago water supply, and plot to place YP's disguised as bellhops in hotels serving the convention delegates. Here, hippie is a term we can find resonating with hippies. For those who don't know, a hippie is basically an individual who believes in non-conventional values and traditions. Rubin and Hoffman again made headlines during the trial as they showed up in judicial robes in the courtroom only to further rile Judge Hoffman who cited them for contempt. So far, we've dealt with five defendants. The next pair of co-defendants were Lee Wiener and John Franz. Lee Wiener was the least familiar of the defendants, with only limited connections to those who had planned the demonstrations. Wiener was a research assistant in sociology department at the Northwestern University. John Franz, on the other hand, was an assistant professor of chemistry at the University of Oregon. Franz and Wiener were the only defendants not related to a leadership of a national organization. And were thereby acquitted by the court. So far, I've led the charge from pacifism, the SDS, and the E.P.S. Now it's time to look at the eighth defendant, who was later given a mistrial as a result of which the Chicago Eight became Chicago Seven. I'm talking about the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale. Bobby Seale was in many ways the unlikeliest of the conspiracy defendants. He admitted only one other defendant, Jerry Rubin, before the indictment and some of the defendants did not meet him until they first appeared in the courtroom. Seal had been in Chicago briefly during the convention week to give two speeches. Although his case was severed from the others well before the end of the trial, Seal's confrontations with Judge Hoffman and Hoffman's order to have him bound and gagged in the courtroom remain the most powerful examples of the breakdown of the judicial process during the trial. The inclusion of SEAL in the conspiracy indictment perplexed many people, including the other defendants, but it came at a time of numerous prosecutions of Black Panther Party members in different parts of the country following extensive FBI surveillance of the party members. Shortly before the start of the trial, SEAL and other members of the party were indicted in Connecticut on charges of conspiracy to murder a suspected police informant. Because of the indictment, Seal was the only defendant held in jail during the Chicago trial. Much of the noise surrounding Seal was whether he was entitled to represent himself in court in absence of his attorney, Charles Gary, who at the time was recovering from surgery. The reason behind getting into the defendant's background was, it can be inferred that every individual in this matter acted consciously rather than being led by an opposing party or an entity. We will now move to the Vietnam War, which is an essential aspect of demonstrations and the anti-war protests. The Vietnam War was a long, costly and divisive conflict that pitted the communist government of North Vietnam and South Vietnam against its principal ally, the United States. The conflict was further intensified by ongoing Cold War between the United States and Soviet Union. Vietnam, a nation in the Southeast Asia, had been under French colonial rule since the 19th century. During World War II, Japanese forces invaded Vietnam. In order to fight off both Japanese occupiers and the French colonial administration, political leader Ho Chi Minh, inspired by Chinese and Soviet communism, formed the Viet Minh or the League of Independence of Vietnam. The Vietnam War and the active US involvement in the war began in 1954, after Ho's communist forces took power in the North, armed conflict between northern and southern armies continued until a Viet Minh's decisive victory in the Battle of Dien Minh Phu. The subsequent treaty, signed in July 1954 at a Geneva conference, split Vietnam with Ho in the control in the north and Bao in the south. The treaty also called for nationwide elections for reunification to be held in 1956. With training and equipment from American military and CIA, TMs security forces cracked down on Viet Minh sympathizers in the southern part. A team sent by President John F. Kennedy in 1961 to report on conditions in South Vietnam advised a buildup of American military, economic and technical aid in order to help DiEM confront the Viet Cong threat. Working under the domino theory which held that if one Southeast Asian country fell to communism many other countries would follow, Kennedy increased U.S. aid through his stopped short of committing large-scale military intervention. By 1962, the U.S. military presence in South Vietnam had reached more than 9,000 troops, compared with fewer than 800 during the 50s. In contrast to the air attacks on North Vietnam, the U.S.-South Vietnamese war effort in South was primarily fought on the ground, largely under the command of General William Westmoreland in coordination with the government of General Thieu in Saigon. Westmoreland pursued a policy of attrition, aiming to kill as many enemy troops as possible rather than trying to secure territory. By 1966, large areas of South Vietnam had been designated as free fire zones from which all innocent civilians were supposed to have evacuated and only enemy remained. Heavy bombing by B-52 aircraft or shelling made these zones absolutely inhabitable for civilians. By November 1967, the number of American troops in Vietnam was approaching 500,000 and U.S. casualties had reached nearly 15,000 deaths and more than 100,000 soldiers wounded. As the war stretched on, some soldiers came to mistrust the government's reasons for keeping them there, as well as Washington's repeated claims that the war was being won. Bombarded by the horrific images of the war on their televisions, Americans on home front turned against the war and in October of 67, some 35,000 demonstrators staged a massive Vietnam war protest outside the Pentagon. Opponents of war argued that civilians, not enemy combatants, were the primary victims and that the United States was supporting a corrupt dictatorship in Saigon. From 67, we go to 68. Another year which further escalated to political climate as both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. After a successful march on Pentagon, Dillinger's National Mobilization Committee planned to stage demonstrations against the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. They opened up an office in Chicago directed by Renee Davis and Tom Hayden. On the other side, a small group of cultural radicals Including Jerry Rubin, who helped Dillinger organize the march on Pentagon, and Abby Hoffman, an organizer of political theater events, planned a festival of life to counter the Democratic convention of death, as quoted by him. They planned outdoor concerts, nonviolent self-defense classes, guerrilla theater, and a an nude on Chicago beach. On the eve of the convention, Mayor Daley of Chicago put some 12,000 members of Chicago Police Department. On 12-hour shifts and called for the governor to activate the National Guard. The US Army placed 6,000 troops in the city. Beginning on Sunday, August 25, the police and demonstrators clashed in city parks where many of the protests were staged and where visiting demonstrators hoped to sleep. For three nights, the aggressive police sweep through Lincoln Park was met with demonstrators taunting and occasional crocs. With tear gas and clubbings, The police forced demonstrators out of the park and into commercial areas where demonstrators smashed windows. Violence escalated on the afternoon of August 20th when police at the week's largest rally charged through the crowd in Grand Park to prevent a man from lowering the US flag. After some measure of peace returned, David Dillinger attempted to negotiate a permit to march to the convention hall. When the city denied the permit, the demonstrators attempted to regroup in front of one of the convention delegates' hotels, where the delegates were staying. In the course of things, police lost control of the crowd and violently attempted to clear a street intersection. That being said, the television cameras recorded an expression of indiscriminate police brutality and violence while the demonstrators chanted, The whole world is watching. The violence surrounding one of the essential rights of American democracy deepened the widespread perception that the nation faced a political and cultural crisis. The city of Chicago, the U.S. Department of Justice, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, and the presidentially appointed National Commission on Causes and Prevention of Violence all responded with investigation of the violence. Within days, the daily administration issued the first report blaming the violence on outside agitators, described as revolutionaries, who came to Chicago for a single avowed purpose of a hostile confrontation with the law enforcement. John Mitchell, the new U.S. Attorney General, worked with the U.S. Attorney Office in Chicago to strengthen the draft indictments of the demonstrators. The indicted demonstrators soon came to be known as the Chicago Eight, and were charged with conspiring to use interstate commerce with intent to incite a riot. The randomly assigned judge for the trial, Julius Jennings Hoffman, became as much of a symbol as any of the defendants, as his imperious manner and apparent bias against the defendants inflamed tensions. The judge, during the trial, denied the defence attorneys access to government evidence obtained without a warrant, and barred the defence from submitting the Lake Villa document in which Hayden and Davis set out their non strategy. Judge Hoffman further prohibited former Attorney General Ramsey Clark from testifying about his opposition to prosecution of demonstrators and also sharply limited the defence lawyer's ability to question Mayor Daly. For the public that followed the trial in the daily media, the substantive arguments and procedural questions were overshadowed by the intentionally subversive behavior of the defendants and the high-handed dramatics of the judge. As Jerry Rubin pleaded not guilty with a raised fist, when introduced to the jury, Abby Hoffman blew them a kiss. The defendants often refused to rise when so instructed, and on the day of the moratorium to end the war in Vietnam, the defendants draped a Viet Cong flag over the defense table. Throughout the trial, various defendants called out obscenities and labelled the judge and prosecutors, liars or Gestapo officers. In the most theatrical display of contempt for judicial authority, A.B. Hoffman and Jerry Rubin entered the courtroom in judicial robes and then flung them to the floor and stomped on them. Judge Hoffman, in this case, was all too easily provoked by the antics of the defendants and in his own instinct for the theatrical added to the carnival atmosphere of the courtroom. For all the apparent anarchy in the courtroom, Judge Hoffman issued no contempt orders until the argument phase closed. Then, while the jury deliberated, the judge cited defendants and their lawyers for 159 counts of criminal contempt and sentenced them to prison terms ranging from less than three months for Lee Weiner to more than four years for William Kunstler. Some of the convictions were for courtroom outbursts and profanities. Many were for laughter, and others were based on the refusal of a defendant to rise as a judge entered or left the courtroom. After five days of deliberation, the jury on February 19 acquitted all seven defendants of conspiracy and acquitted Froence and Wiener on all charges. The jury, however, found five defendants, other than Froence and Wiener, guilty of travelling between states and intent to incite a riot. Judge Hoffman imposed the maximum sentence of five years in prison on each of the defendants found guilty. The convictions were later overturned in the Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit. The Court of Appeals also found that Judge Hoffman had erred in not asking potential jurors about their political and cultural attitudes or about exposure to pre-trial publicity. In unsparing language, the Court of Appeals censured Judge Hoffman and the government attorneys for their open hostility towards the defendants and their failure to fulfill the standards of a system of justice. Their demeanor alone, the court concluded, was sufficient reason to reverse the conviction. The reversal left open the government's option of retrying each of the defendants individually and the Court of Appeals reviewed the evidence that it believed a jury might find sufficient for a conviction later. In January 1973, The US Department of Justice announced that it would not pursue any further prosecution in the case. In the aftermath of the case, in many ways the cultural and political moment that defined a trial had passed by the fall of 72. Even the judges of the US Court of Appeals felt the need to remind readers of their opinion on how divided the country was back in 68. The killings at the Kent State University in May 1970 had changed the youth protest movement, which lost much of its political focus and left-wing groups like Students for a Democratic Society had since splintered, leaving older leaders like Tom Hayden permanently alienated from the increasingly violent agenda of groups like Weather Underground. The Chicago trial had established no precedent for the use of Anti-Riot Act against the political demonstrators. The trial of Chicago 7 lived on less as a legal milestone than as a cultural marker of dissident youth culture in the 60s America and political divisions surrounding the Vietnam War. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Till then, if you have any suggestions, feel free to reach out through any of the podcasting platforms. My name is Adenath and thank you for listening.